Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. As he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. I love the idea of people being miraculously fed. Magic feasts, bread multiplying outrageously to feed everyone. I really like stories where food is miraculously manifested. I think it has to do with some primal hope or some primal desire that there is enough somehow, somewhere, however outrageously or unbelievably, somehow there is enough to fill need all that need. My kids used to ask me to tell them a story, oh, when they were young and sweet. I would always work that in somehow, some sort of miraculous food thing. Some kid might be on adventure, or maybe some kid is lost and hungry, and they end up somewhere in another world or some hollow tree. And then out of nowhere, there'd be food floating around or laid out beautifully on a table or hanging on trees, and it's like nothing they've ever seen or nothing they've ever tasted before, super juicy or delicious and somehow incredibly satisfying. Or maybe some kid was starving and hopeless in the woods and gets fed by chipmunks or butterflies. Or in another version, there's some sort of magic thing you eat or drink that transforms or transports you or frees you. And actually, it's not just me that likes to tell these kind of stories. They're all over folk tales and fairy tales. You know, in every culture, enchanted beings, the pot that never empties, magic banquets. I think that people like to imagine that there could somehow be enough that there's a possibility that all that hunger might be satisfied. It seems very unlikely. But I love a story where Dumbledore, with a twitch of his wand, makes a dusty bottle and four glasses of the finest honey-colored meat appear, or chicken legs and pudding, or big giant chocolate cakes. 
There's some really great feeding stories in the Bible. Really good and preposterous ones. Just how I like them. It's like the narrative will be going on fairly sensibly and then out of nowhere. Some sort of unrestrained and unreasonable fatness emerges. Like the manna in the wilderness. Crazy story. The people have escaped from slavery in Egypt, and they're free. It's kind of this huge, big, beautiful deal. But then they're walking around in the wilderness, and they're hungry, and they start thinking, why didn't we just stay in Egypt and sit by the pots of meat? That's what they say. They wish they had stayed in Egypt and sat by the pots of meat. If I were the God who had just liberated them from slavery, I think I would say, fine, go back and sit by your pots of meat. Jeez, endless. But instead, God actually says, okay, you're hungry. I will make bread rain down from heaven for you. It's so absurd and outrageous and beautiful. The people find this mysterious, miraculous bread all over the ground every morning, and in the evening, quails come up and fill the camp so the people get their meat. And then there's this other story where this, was, this widow's husband dies, or this woman's husband dies. She becomes a widow. She has no money. She has nothing. And the creditors are coming to take her children away. And Elisha says, well, what can I do to help you? Tell me if you have anything in the house. And she says, I have nothing. I actually have nothing. And he says, come on, tell me one thing that you might have in the house. And she says, okay, I have one jar of oil. And so he says, okay, go out and collect every container you can find, you know, old plastic containers in the streets, by the road. Get any container, pans, bottles, buckets. Get as many as you can and then go in your house and shut the door and then pour that little bit of oil you have into the jars and containers. And so the widow keeps pouring and pouring and the oil fills up everything. All the empty vessels, everything. And Elisha says, now go and sell the oil and pay your debts. And the widow and her children are able to live on that unexplainable, crazy abundance the rest of their life. That's in the Bible. And then I really love this one. There's this huge, horrible famine and drought going on. And God tells Elijah, just go and live in the wilderness. And he goes out there with nothing. And he probably thinks he's going to starve to death. And he might not care. Everything's terrible. But he sets up a camp and goes to sleep. And then he wakes up in the morning to see these ravens flying into the camp with bread in their beaks and meat. And they drop it off for him. And in the evening, the ravens fly back in and drop off the meat and the bread again. Don't you love a story like that? I want to camp by a brook and be fed by ravens. And then there's a story for tonight, the feeding of the 5,000, which is a pretty major story. It's repeated six times in the New Testament, different versions. In this one, Jesus takes a boat out to a lonely place, probably to grieve because he's just heard that his friend John the Baptist's head has been cut off. And so he wants to be alone, but he goes out there and there's all these people here, which seems like it would have been really a drag. But Jesus adjusts to it. And he has compassion on all these people. And they hang around, and they hang around, and they hang around. But Jesus, and it gets really late, it gets past supper time, and the disciples finally say, you know, look, 
These people are going to be hungry. We should send them out to the towns to find food. But Jesus says, they don't need to go away to find food. Feed them. And they're like, well, we don't really have any food. But Jesus takes the little they come up with, and he blesses it. And all the people are fed. Five thousands of people are fed from like two lo- five loaves and two fish. And everyone is filled and satisfied, and there's even all this bread and fish left over. A lot of times people say that there's a moral to this story. And the moral is something like, share. Jesus says, you feed them. But the thing about the miraculous feedings in the Bible is there's never quite a moral to any of them, really. In folk tales and fairy tales, there often is a moral to the story. Don't be greedy, share. But the miraculous feedings in the Bible just aren't really like that at all. It's more like they are these little breaks in the middle of a fairly sensible narrative where there's suddenly this absurd, irrational, and mysterious abundance. You know, and maybe we're sort of dying for there to be some lesson about what we're supposed to do. But it's more just this reckless fecundity flowing with milk and honey, where things are bearing or lacking or hollow, where there is need, there is suddenly, miraculously, prolific food. To feed complaining, disappointed, unsatisfied people, hungry people. Bread raining from the skies, come on. Birds flying in with bread and meat in their beaks, wild. I think the moral to the story might be missing because the gospel isn't so much a demand that we not be selfish. It's not so much a demand that we manufacture the good as it is something that creates the condition where we might be free to live gratefully and generously. In Isaiah, God says, Delight in the fatness and live. Something about that verse I love. I'm not sure what it means, but it sounds like the opposite of despair and the emptiness and die. The thrust of the miraculous feedings in the Bible doesn't seem to be, don't be greedy, share. The voice is just different. It's more, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, eat, delight. It's surprising, but the voice in these narratives really doesn't have the tone of try harder to be better or quit complaining and go out and feed yourselves. It's more like relax, don't be anxious, delight in the fatness and live. Of course, you may delight in kale too. But with God, it's so often bread and wine, carbs and calories. A certain fatness, really. It's not the voice of shame or scarcity or reprimand or reason even. It's more like the voice of an avid lover wooing the beloved, 
come to me so that your soul may be alive. And I don't know, but I guess I believe somehow that that works. I think hearing, don't be greedy and share your toys and be good, does something different to us than hearing, I love you, come to me, that your soul may live. When Jesus says to the disciples, no, the people don't have to go out and buy the food, you feed them. He isn't really telling the disciples to break bread, to bake the bread. He's not demanding that they come up with something. He's confident that whatever it is is already there. Jesus doesn't demand feeding in this story. I think he sort of breeds feeding. It doesn't create the sort of climate or mood that setting up an accounting table might where everybody has to stand in line and show what they have, what they've done, what they've grew, grown or canned in their garden. It's just more like a party where there's this enormous abundance of unbelievable food provided, wine all around. It's obvious that it's never going to run out, and you're eating and drinking and enjoying it. And if somebody walks up and they look a little lost or hungry, you aren't burdened by their hunger. You're like, hey, have a glass of wine. And you start handing them their wine. You're like, you should try this cheese. It's really beautiful with the wine. And these strawberries, man, eat it. I think it's a glimpse into a place where you could believe that there is no scarcity, where you could believe in the infinite abundance. So of course you're inviting everyone in, and you're handing out plates of cake, and you're not at all afraid that someone's going to take your plate or your place or get there first. Miraculous feedings are about something that isn't scarce at all. They aren't about oil, obviously, or the world's resources, or our money, or our altruism, or our righteousness, or our willingness, or our anything. They're about something infinitely abundant outside of us that relates to us and to the world in a way that will transform everything. Like I said, it seems unlikely. It seems hard to believe. I think we have a hard time hearing that lover's voice. Even though Jesus says in this story, nobody has to go out and buy the food, it seems like we are still constantly hearing, you have to go out and buy the food. Honestly, though, I don't think that hearing that breeds feeding. I think it gets you more into this place where you're like, okay, now I have to buy the food, and it's going to be a lot of hard work, and we never have enough money, and we're tired and burdened, so burdened by the hunger, the need. And then you look over at your neighbor or the Koch brothers, and they aren't even trying. All you see is selfishness and greediness, and you're sure as hell not going to invite those bastards over for a glass of wine on your back porch or offer them any cake. Believing the burden is ours breeds not love, I think. But if we were laying by the streams, drinking the water, and the ravens were bringing us meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread in the evening, maybe we'd just be grateful. And the thing is, maybe they do. Maybe the thing is, we just can't most of the time see the abundance very well because we just don't see that well. 
And we can't delight in the fatness because from our angle, everything seems so scarce and scary. But maybe everything is provided somehow. Maybe there's enough. Maybe God is creating, sustaining, and redeeming, loving the world all the time, lavishly. And we can absurdly, we can outrageously believe that. Maybe miraculous feeding stories sort of concentrate the miraculous to try and get us to see the infinite abundance. And if we could trust that, we would do a lot less damage with our striving and grasping, our competing and protecting and fearing and buying and building. I know that it doesn't seem like ravens quite fly in every evening to bring us food in their beaks. But maybe God's love is somehow like that. If we could open our mouths and receive. I don't know, but I think there's a banquet and there's enough to fill every need. I think we could marvel at the fatness every day and live and be free to share the wine and free to hand out platefuls of cake. In this miraculous feeding story, Jesus takes the bread and gives thanks for it and breaks it and feeds everyone. Delight in the fatness and live.